Innovate UK KTN, connecting for positive change. Hello and welcome to episode five of the UK KTN Geo for Earth podcast series. I'm Dallas Campbell. I'm a science and technology television presenter. And I'm Susie Imber, a space physicist, and we'll be with you throughout this series talking to some of the finest minds grappling with climate change. In this episode, we're chatting with Andrew Deutz, Director of Global Policy, Institutions and Conservation Finance at the Nature Conservancy. And Victor Huragu, who is the Senior Africa Regional Manager at the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data. And this episode is all about the value of nature. Hope you enjoy the series. Hope it gives you food for thoughts. Enjoy this episode. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. We've got all kinds of things we want to talk about. We want to talk a little bit about how we pay for uh, solutions to climate change. We want to talk a little bit about collaboration. We want to talk about all kinds of things. We want to talk about data. But I thought, actually, Susie, before we do that, why don't we get our guests to just introduce themselves a little bit and tell us where you're from and what it is that you do. So I'm Andrew Deutz. I lead the global policy team for the Nature Conservancy, one of the largest conservation organizations in the world. My specialty is in environmental diplomacy. So I like to joke, my natural habitat is a windowless UN conference room. Nice, (laughs) classy. (laughs) Negotiating around climate change, biodiversity, oceans, um, and recently a lot more time spent on conservation finance and climate finance. So when you say diplomacy, does that mean you have to be sort of nice all the time and calm and... That's the stereotype. Being a diplomat actually means communicating and reaching agreement, although sometimes it can mean being very strident. Hmm. So I have a, a, a doctorate in international environmental law, and I spent my whole career, as I say, in environmental diplomacy, working on trying to come up with global solutions to environmental problems and helping countries figure out how to implement them and how, how to get the world to pay for it. That basically sounds like Earth's most challenging job. Well, my wife is a doctor, so she gets to see sometimes instantaneous results. And, and I'm still waiting for, to see some results after a 25-year career. Yeah, goodness <laughs> me. So it's long, slow, patient, but, you know, you're talking about whole Earth systems. You can't even gaze out the window and sort of look lo- longingly outside. You're just, they just lock you away and, mm-hmm. and tell you to get on with it. And just, just make it happen, Andrew. We want diplomacy. We want solutions. Oh, we're going to dig down into loads of these topics as we, as we proceed today. But, Victor, why don't you give us a brief introduction to yourself? So I'm, I'm Victor Varago, the Senior Africa Regional Manager for the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data uh, at the UN Foundation. Uh, typically, I normally sit in uh, London, uh, Lagos, Nigeria, uh, but at the moment, I'm in London, you know, Ontario. Uh, and I do, you know, uh, work and engage with all our technical level, you know, uh, managers and political leaders across, you know, the African continent. And of course, with a lot of our global technical stakeholders helping to galvanize action. Uh, that's focused on the use of data for the SDGs and also for the various development priorities of these national partners. Uh, so good to be here. Oh, well, welcome, Victor. I should just say SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. And actually, that's probably a good place for us to start, actually, with you, Victor, talking a bit about some examples of how data is used to tackle the Sustainable Development Goals in Africa. Do you have some good examples to share with us? Uh, quite a number, number of examples, you know, from the work that we've done in the last couple of years. Um, I, I, let me start with, you know, one of the, you know, um, very defining program that, you know, we did put together with a couple of partners uh, some few years ago called the Africa Regional Data Cube, Africa Regional Data Cube. So it's an earth observation satellite data infrastructure uh, that's, you know, housed about 17 years of ingested data. 
uh, and has tools and algorithms for producing analytical ready products for environmental monitoring. Uh, and this was you know, uh, co-developed by the Community, Committee, Committee on Earth Observation Satellites, CEOs, uh, Group on Earth Observations, Amazon Web Services, uh, the Deputy President of Kenya, and of course, the Global Partnership uh, with the University of Strathmore in Kenya. And it was just packed, you know, packed for five or six nations in Africa at that point in time, uh, including Ghana, Sierra Leone, Senegal, Tanzania, and Kenya. Uh, but now that platform has you know, evolved into what we now call the Digital Af Africa, and it's a continent-wide resources. Initially, it was just for five, six countries, but now they've got data into it to, you know, on that platform for about 54 countries in Africa. Uh, and the idea was that you know, this you know, satellite infrastructure could be used free you know, by these nations to address various issues relating to agriculture, food security, deforestation, urbanization, water issues, you know, illegal mining and more. Uh, and we've got fantastic case you know, studies coming out of a few of the countries. Uh, for instance, in Senegal, uh, we did work with the government you know, uh, institutions and some other non-state actors uh, in Senegal, you know, providing them training for several months on how to use that particular in, uh, platform and infrastructure, you know, enabling them to put together the necessary coordinating and governance infrastructure that then can create sustainable use uh, of these various applications. Uh, just to quickly run forward, you know, three major key areas of impact uh, that we have documented with respect to that work in Senegal had to do with agriculture, uh, deforestation, and water quality. Uh, so in Senegal, uh, the lake that produces or provides water for the city of Senegal called Lake Laguerre or so, you know, provides about 40% of the water consumed in Senegal. And that infrastructure was used to study, you know, the water availability and quality of that lake over a course, you know, of, of time. And they saw that uh, within that, you know, uh, period of study, uh, the lake had shrunk. Uh, in several, you know, uh, percentages, and that was a big question for, you know, the regulatory regulatory bodies, the folks who are, you know, in charge uh, of, you know, water issues in the country. So the process data uh, from the infrastructure, and were able to help, you know, uh, uh, address a couple of key policy issues uh, that, you know, uh, came out of the. Um, the, the, the outcomes, you know, so to speak, of that work that was done using the ARDC. Uh, an important one also that struck the, the government was the issue of deforestation. A particular forested area in the country uh, was also studied, and they saw that over the last, you know, 10 years or so, they've lost over 5,000 hectares, you know, of forest cover. Uh, in that particular, you know, location, which would not have been possible uh, if they had not used, you know, this technology, because having to travel several kilometers, you know, and walking through several hectares of, you know, forest, you know, land, uh, would have been very difficult, you know, to achieve that in a couple of days. But within 15 minutes, uh, they were able to achieve that kind of result using the Africa Regional Data Cube, and they then put into, you know, uh, place you know, a couple of policies that would further help to protect the forested region. Uh, so this was uh, some, you know, uh, of the result that we saw uh, in Senegal. The work caught the attention of a number of other partners, including the Islamic Development Bank, and they have asked us to see if we can replicate that work uh, at the moment in a few other countries. We started talking to, you know, the Togolese government, and of course the governments in Guinea and Mali, uh, they are all pretty excited about the opportunity of using earth observation satellite, you know, uh, infrastructure and capability to address, you know, key environments. Fantastic. So, so, so the, your organization basically put together um, a, a place where people could access their earth observation data 
or governments and presumably scientists as well could gain access to the data? Was that the main role uh, that your organization played in, in this bigger picture? Yeah, so we, we broke out that, you know, whole collaboration, uh, bringing the various partners, you know, NASA, you know, of course, you know, uh, SEALs, Amazon Web Services provided the cloud infrastructure with cloud credits. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a number of scientists who also had, you know, worked with us and ingested methods uh, and algorithms that these various nations could use. Then we brought in the government partners. We had to actually carefully identify the right institutions in each of these countries, from Senegal to Kenya to Ghana, you know, to uh, Sierra Leone, uh, who are these right you know, uh, institutions who got the mandate to work on you know, spatial data you know, from the spatial agencies to the national statistical offices, to the likes of the ministries of environment, land, water, forestry, you know, bringing together in each of these nations about 15 government you know, institutions. And of course, on the other non-state actor side, civil society groups who are keen and are working in environment, you know, research institutions, bringing them all together to, you know, uh, uh, discuss these issues, agree on a common, you know, framework, you know, agree on the governance and coordinating infrastructure for, you know, uh, implementing the work and then bringing in our partners from NASA to provide training over a couple of months, you know, in how to use the technology, working with them to deep dive on specific use cases and producing analytics that then could, you know, be used by policymakers. Then we, of course, engage the policymakers within all these institutions, bringing them together to see the results, you know, coming out of this work. For instance, the vice president's office in Tanzania was quite excited when he saw the results uh, because, you know, the issues of environment sits directly you know, within his office. And so he was able to use these results and outcomes, you know, for key, you know, policy interventions uh, in their country. So our role, you know, we're a connector, we broker, you know, difficult conversations, we bring, you know, people together from different walks of life, uh, all about, you know, just uh, using data, you know, for sustainable development. Well, it sounds like collaboration really is at the core of, 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 your, of your business and, and what you've been up to. Tell us a bit more about the role of collaboration in achieving your goals. Uh, well, um, so part of what we have seen across the world is, you know, where governments want to make better use of data to tackle, you know, the world's toughest challenges, including, you know, how to transform their economies, you know, post-COVID, protect the planet and the people. And on the other hand, non-state actors like companies are constantly innovating, producing huge amounts of data and trying to see how that all could be used for public good. And here are communities who are also struggling about how to access data and use that data to serve their people. And of course, to hold their leaders accountable. Uh, yet we see that this action within the data ecosystem is often fragmented. You know, people acting in different silos. Change makers don't know how to find each other and when they do find each other, they don't speak the same language. So that was a major challenge. And so the global partnership, you know, bridges this divide. You know, we, we, we connect, we facilitate, we broker. We are so an advocate. And, and in the last five years of our founding, we have brokered over 100 partnerships across the world, delivering on data for the SDGs. Uh, and in achieving this, what, one of the things we've seen is that, you know, the multi-stakeholder governance model is absolutely important. Uh, specifically the collaborative governance model, which we have actually leveraged. Uh, and I would like to define it. You know, I stole the definition from Ansel and Gash. And, you know, he said, and I quote, it's a governing arrangement where more, where one or more public agencies directly engage non-state stakeholders in a collective decision-making process that is formal, consensus-oriented, deliberative, 
and that aims to make or implement public policy or manage public programs or assets. You know, so in, in most of the cases across these nations where you have national issues that are being connected to a global agenda, such as the SDGs, the multi-stakeholder governance approaches arguably are often the better approach you know, to take, uh, given the multiple layers of governance, the interest, the conflicting institutional mandates that you see across most countries, you know, and all of these need to be brought together. And so uh, we it's have- It's complicated. It, it is very, very complicated, trust me, you know, uh, because the, I mean, you imagining gathering 15 different institutions in one room, you know, to talk about, you know, a specific agenda, all of them come with an institutional mandate. There are even personal mandates. And oftentimes there's a bit of a trick in terms of how to balance, you know, personal interest versus institutional interest and aligning all of that to the national interest in itself. So we have exploited this model through our various initiatives, the programs, the projects that we lead, you know, to tap the capabilities of our over 300 partners, you know, in fostering collaboration to put power behind data uh, in delivering on the SDGs. Let me bring in Andrew, because I just want to sort of slightly pick up on that on that you said something about you know the the problems of not speaking the same language and i can imagine that just within the context of you know one country in africa let alone all the countries in africa who presumably all have a sets of unique challenges and priorities andrew for you working working where you are and you're a diplomat and you deal with issues all over the world the problem of not speaking the same language i don't mean literally not speaking the same language but everyone must have just their own priorities. How on earth do you square that that circle? I'll just say, you know, I often get the question when I'm talking to students, what's the most important skill that they should develop to work in the environmental field? And I say, basically, it's being a translator. Because as you're trying to grapple with environmental problems, you're actually trying to grapple with everything. And so one of the challenges, and it doesn't work for us as environmentalists to go and say, you should care about the environment. If you're trying to fix problems caused by the transportation sector or in the agriculture sector or the industrial sector, you or change the way companies behave because of with concerns about their balance sheets, you need to be able to talk to them and engage with them in their language. Right. So talked about to farmers about agricultural productivity and changes that they can make that will improve soil quality and reduce greenhouse gas emissions or even sequester carbon and improve their bottom line. Right. And feed the world. And if you're going to go talk to corporations, it's about understanding their risks and liability, speaking to them in the language of risks and liability, which is how corporate decisions get made around the bottom line. So I just want to say, like, the most important skill for environmentalists actually is to be able to be that translator to speak in different languages. And we can't just be trained in the science, but we've got to be able to understand or be able to think in the, the frames and the mentality that people we're trying to influence and work with, because ultimately they're the ones whose behavior we're trying to change. So to me, that's the most important skill as an environmental advocate is being that translator or interpreter to be able to speak multiple, if you will, functional languages and understand the way different mentalities work. Are there any kind of universal themes that you, that one can apply to, to everyone that people will just sort of understand and latch on to? I mean, presumably everyone wants to improve the environment and look after natural habitats and reduce climate change. But, but are there kind of universal words that are that are used in between all these different factions? So the I, the easiest thing to do is always bring it back to thinking about the future and how it impacts you in your backyard and your kids and your family, right? Things that everybody cares about. I live in the U.S. Climate change has been a controversial issue for a long time, a, high, a deeply politicized ideological issue. But the way you can break through that is talk about 
what's going on in your backyard and how you want to make the, the world a better place for yourself and your kids and connect to the values that people have, which you can do on an individual basis. Then when you start thinking on, on a larger scale, you kind of look at, I would go back to the, the sustainable development goals I mentioned earlier, which is a, a list of 17 things that ultimately is an articulation of how we want to make the world a better place for ourselves and our kids. And what was interesting to me when, when we negotiated the sustainable development goals in the UN, we sort of thought it was just going to be something that the UN diplomats cared about. But surprisingly, as we talked to a lot of our corporate partners, they've latched onto it because as, as there is increasing sense of corporate responsibility and companies want to justify to their investors and to their customers that they are responsible corporate actors, the way they do that is by saying, this is what we're doing to support the sustainable development goal around reducing poverty, around reducing food insecurity, about providing clean drinking water, about ensuring access to education, about improving gender equality. So that list of sustainable development goals becomes Interestingly, a common narrative to talk about what you do to make the world a better place. And that's a, a, a way to, to connect and connect actions to the outcomes that we want to achieve collectively. And does that cut through sort of politics? I mean, I know that climate change is so deeply politicized along left-right axes, you know, certainly in America and in Europe. I don't really know about, about Africa as much, but... Do, do, do sort of conservatives and liberals both see it in, in those terms? You see it a whole different range of, of ways of looking at it, right? And there's concerns about what's the nature of the problem, what's the nature of the solution, and whether or not in any individual from their ideological perspective likes that solution, and therefore if they want to start getting into denial. But I think we're, we're sort of past that. And I say we're past that in that these days, major companies understand climate change is real, the direction of travel of the global economy is towards a low carbon future. Customers and investors expect that's the way the world is gonna go. And so companies have to react and adjust to that reality. So we're at the point now where the UK, the European Union, even the US now, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the, the US government entity that regulates companies that are listed on the stock exchange, is now putting out regulations to require companies to disclose their climate change impacts, their greenhouse gas emissions, and the impacts that their products and supply chains have. So the point, like, that's getting into the nitty gritty, but that's mm -hmm. how you actually move the whole global economy through requiring companies to first evaluate and man analyze their greenhouse gas emissions profile, mm -hmm. and then set some targets and then hold them accountable to that and make them report on it and disclose on it publicly. Because big investors now are looking at companies and saying, you know, if I'm investing in or money that goes into a pension fund for someone who's at the beginning of their career today, they're expecting to get paid back out of the returns on that 40 years from now. So institutional investors are looking at the companies they're investing in and say, is your business model going to be viable in the year 2060? at a time when we expect that there will be no more fossil fuel use, at a time when every car is going to be an electric car, at a time when coal is in the ground, basically, and we're running the economy and running the energy system that fuels the economy in a completely different way, is your business model driving towards that future that we think we're going to have? In which case, we, you're a good investment so I can pay back um, the guy who, you know, pay back the pension in 40 years. If not, I don't think I want to invest in you today because I'm not going to have a return on investment 40 years from now. So the, the financial system is now starting to incorporate long-term climate thinking, and that's shifting the behavior of companies, which it is 
where we need to get to. The, mm -hmm. the biggest question is, are we moving fast enough? So the direction of travel is now shifted in the right direction, but we need to press the accelerator. And is this how we go about encouraging finance and investments into uh, supporting our fight against climate change or protecting our biodiversity and nature? Is it a, is this how we go about sort of, you know, incentivizing that, that investment, Andrew, do you think, thinking about future long-term sort of financial gain? Yeah, I, I was sort of, Stepping back, say, look, there are probably three major industries that are going to drive the economy of the 21st century. Clean energy technology, biotechnology, and information technology. So if you think about what, what we have to do is shift the world to run on completely on renewable energy. And that's going to make huge investments in, in electricity generation capacity. So building all the wind power and solar power that we need and building all the transmission infrastructure to get the energy sources, the new energy sources from where the energy is generated to where the people are who are going to use it and where the industry is that's going to use it. That's a multi-trillion dollar a year investment opportunity that's going to help drive economic growth and development. Now, it's going to leave some, some behind, and there are going to be transition costs, and we need to figure out how we help pay for the, if you will, the just transition for the industries that are left behind. But you know, my father founded his own company in 1962 selling typewriter ribbons. By the time he retired and sold the company, it had been 20 years since he'd sold a typewriter ribbon, right? Because the, the product line evolved to where he was selling dot matrix printer cartridges and then to sell to still buy typewriter ribbons just yeah, so okay you know, there's, well, there's areas of niche market Washington, there New York. Niche it's market niche there. it's right. niche but so it evolved <laughs> to where he was then solving laser toner cartridges and then the, the final innovation before he retired was what's called remanufacturing where you open up the the plastic casing pour in the toner and sell sell it back so you're recycling and the, the dirty, or I should say the clean secret that paid for my college education is that the profit margins on the recycled cartridges were higher than on the, the freshly manufactured ones. So my father had all this advertising material about reducing landfill waste and reducing energy use and what have you. Not because he was an environmentalist, because that was where the higher profit margin was. It's that shift in thinking that there's better and cleaner ways to do things and a changing product line. Now, you know, my father was a three-person company making typewriter ribbons originally, but to then think about shifting the whole fossil fuel system to where we're now generating our electricity, not by coal and oil and natural gas, but to shifting by wind and solar, geothermal and other sources of renewable is a you know, multiple orders of magnitude different change, but it's the same evolution. Like we shifted from car, from horses to cars, and now we're gonna shift from internal combustion engines to electric batteries, but that's just the evolution of the products. And there is money to be made in that process along the way, especially if government sets the right regulatory conditions and incentives, and then mm -hmm. the capital markets will come in behind and we can, we can drive the change. But governments and the private sector and the investors need to all be like taking steps in tandem to reinforce the direction that we need to go. That was my question, actually. Is everyone in, is, is the government and, and big energy producers, is everyone in tandem or, 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 or is, are there kind of sort of missteps? When you talked about stepping on the accelerator pedal, mm. is it a nice smooth, are we sort of, is it a nice smooth acceleration or is it a bit jerky at the moment? I would say it's extremely jerky at the moment. How right? can we, we smooth it out? Starts. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we had, I mean, like a, a big step forward with the Paris Agreement in 2015. Yeah. And we had yeah, yeah. world leaders coming together to say, this is what we need to do. And simultaneously, what I thought was really interesting was 
the financial industry at the time came out with a statement recognizing that climate change is a systemic risk to the financial system. The same way like the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the global financial crisis around the real estate market in 2008, 2009 was a threat to the global financial system. By 2015 at, at Paris, there was this recognition that unmitigated climate change is a threat to the global financial system. And we can't keep investing and working the way that we are. Um, you know, a few years earlier, Lord Stern had come out with this economic report that basically said the cost of doing nothing far exceeds the cost of doing something. So we need to fix this. But it, it shifted the mentality in the, when I first started in the climate world, we negotiated the Kyoto Protocol and countries took on emissions reduction commissions at different levels. And the Europeans came up with what they called a burden sharing agreement, right? Because it was an ass assessment that fixing the climate problem is going to be bad for your economy. So we're going to share the burden. Whereas today we look at the driving the new economy of the 21st century that will be low carbon and nature positive as what's going to drive innovation and drive economic growth. Political leaders sometimes take their cues from industry, sometimes take their cues from other parts of industry or from other constituencies. So you get sort of fits and starts. So on President Obama, the U.S. was played a leadership role in getting the Paris Agreement and made some commitments. Then President Trump came in and withdrew from the Paris Agreement. Then President Biden came in and joined back up. So you sort of see the sort of the fits and starts. What's probably the most important element in the Paris Agreement itself is we call it the ratchet mechanism. Because it's meant to, to do two things. And, and this is where the, the kinds of data that Victor talked about is so important. Every country came in and set a set of commitments of what it can do today. And then we're going to go back and review the implementation of those commitments and ask, are countries doing what they've agreed to do? But through the science process globally, we're also going to ask the question is, is what we've agreed to do adequate to solve the problem? And we know right now the answer is no. So the, the Paris Agreement builds in sort of a ratchet mechanism for countries to come back every couple of years mm -hmm. and ratchet up their level of ambition and their commitments to do more. And we keep running that ratchet process every couple of years. So hopefully you get industry driving down costs, driving investment in the right direction, driving innovation. And that becomes more politically feasible and for the politicians to say, oh, I can step out and set higher commitments because the world can get there. And then the industry and the investors say, oh, the politicians are serious about this. The direction of the economy is changing. How do I make a business advantage out of that? And they start moving more and you get that positive mm -hmm. dynamic going. But as I say, it goes in fits and starts. Um, you know, we can look at Brazil, for example, that has record levels of deforestation, um, but an election coming. So we'll see if things change in Brazil. And well, again, it's just, the, the ratchet works sometimes faster, sometimes slower, but that's where we need to go. Which kind of makes you think how important the public is. The public votes in presidents and mm -hmm. votes, in, votes in our politicians. So keeping climate at the top of the political agenda in terms of the general public, I always think is incredibly important. And certainly at the moment in Europe and America, it's very high up on the political agenda and it sort of shifts around. I wonder though in Africa, is it the same in African countries? Do people in Africa, which have a different set of problems to us in Europe and America, do people talk about climate change? Is it, is it something that is um, worried about? Is it is it up there in the political agenda? Yeah, so, so there's a growing awareness uh, you know, about climate change. And of course, you know, environmental degradation are seen in many parts of Africa. And th there is a political consensus, you know, across the various, you know, divides, so to speak. 
uh, in terms of what the issue is and the interventions that needs to be undertaken. And I think that's where the problem or the challenges often lie is around the issue of resource allocation and where those interventions should be pointed to in terms of, you know, constituencies and communities that will receive, you know, this uh, um, support. Uh, but generally, uh, across political divide, you know, there's, there's a consensus around what the issue is, around the need to indeed intervene. And I, and I think that one of the biggest issues, you know, that, you know, is, is a cause you know, for concern in Africa is financing, so to speak, you know, for adaptation and mitigation you know, approaches. Uh, and, and the second issue that we've seen is also around political, you know, uh, what, what I would say policy capacity, you know, for most of the, you know, uh, policymakers who are supposed to take, you know, uh, you know, drive their interventions and policies that they develop, you know, straight out of evidences that, you know, are coming from the type of work that we have done uh, with a couple of these countries. So what we have seen is that, you know, environmental issues, climate change, is among the top priority agenda of most governments right now in Africa, and particularly in communities that are worst, you know, affected. You know, uh, and we've seen that it's uh, increasingly, you know, uh, causing a lot of uh, uh, risk. Uh, in fact, the risk of food insecurity, even at the household level. You know, uh, changes in climate, the water stress that we're seeing across many parts of Africa. You know, uh, our sea level rises in some island nations like Zanzibar. You know, uh, and we've seen that these countries are also struggling in terms of putting the effective, you know, adaptation approaches in place. Uh, and it's largely because they don't have access to timely and up-to-date data and information mm -hmm. to help drive policies and mitigation or adaptation plans and, and efforts. And so this, this is the type of challenge that we have seen. You know, we are pretty much, you know, working very quickly with a number of African countries. And I can give you a few, you know, of the issues that we have come across uh, talking to a number of them, for instance, was speaking with the Togolese government uh, and, and their major issue is around how do they deal with the issue of flood and drought, you know, uh, that pretty much devastates, you know, the ecosystem for them. So they're looking at, you know, how do they generate the type of data, have access to the type of real-time information that could, you know, help policymakers, you know, field level managers to take appropriate, you know, uh, uh, decision and policy actions. In Guinea-Conakry, uh, the government is concerned with a huge forest loss, you know, uh, and desertification that is, you know, really, you know, uh, uh, being a stress to them. In Zanzibar, we're speaking with the Zanzibar government, you know, climate change is real, sea level rise leading to regular flooding, beach erosion, shoreline erosion. Of course, you know, these are big issues, biodiversity loss that they are pretty, pretty much, you know, struggling with. We're currently discussing with Major Sab and Esri, uh, uh, and it's about how do they put together, you know, a tracking mechanism or reporting platform that could help these nations from Ghana to Zanzibar to Namibia, you know, to, to, to help them to identify, you know, the issues of biodiversity and be able to actually track them uh, in real time. Uh, we currently have been talking with the Somalian government. The issue of flood, of drought, rising surface temperature is hugely impacting food security situation in the country. Mali is really huge. Uh, they've got, of course, the crisis and, you know, uh, climate change, of course, also leading to heavy malnutrition uh, across the country. We're speaking to Paraguay. Uh, they've had flooding in the recent times and it's compromising the water you know, system uh, in the country. And they are looking at how do we put together an effective water information management system that enables us to quickly respond to crisis like this and manage water, you know, our, our resource more efficiently and effectively. And so these are some of the issues uh, that we're seeing. Uh, and so climate and environment issues are really, really 
you know, top line agenda for government. Uh, we're pretty much also excited about the support that's also coming in from the private sector. Uh, we're bringing in a couple of our private sector partners, including Esri, NVIDIA, Future Tech. All of them are keen to helping you know, work with us to support these nations from an infrastructure point of view mm, to developing yes. capacity in data science. Uh, because you need such capacity to be able to harness, you know, the types of data, whether it's geospatial, you know, coupled with mobile, you know, uh, really, uh, mobile positioning data and all of that, mixing all of that together to help policymakers have access to the type of real-time information that will help them in making decisions. Decisions as to, you know, what to do, how much they need to allocate to each of these actions, how do they track these various changes, how do they report and, you know, align with global reporting standards. And these are some of the issues. Uh, and we're calling on more partners to actually join us uh, in addressing these issues across the world. Well, it sounds like, you know, what you've just been talking about, which is interesting, is that you have kind of real-time data requirements based on um, current events that are unfolding, like floods and other disasters where you need real-time monitoring. You need to understand um, the climate change more broadly, which means you need long-term data sets going back significant time periods to see changes that might be slow, but cumulatively produce significant changes. And then it sounds like we also need to think about looking forward and you know trying to predict which areas might see um, or what kind of disasters or which areas might be most affected so different kinds of data but it does sound to me like a lot of this data probably exists somewhere so perhaps the challenge is taking the data and putting it in a way or or, or making it available to the right people and, and and this comes back i think to the idea of kind of collaboration as well you know how how do we create a data collaboration model that gets everybody access to the data they need in a way that that they can interpret it so victor what do you think what do you consider as a good data collaboration model to to strengthen what you're trying to do and the partnership as well between private public sector organizations and local communities. Yeah, so it, it still, you know, that takes me back to the collaborative model that I've spoken about, you know, the uh, model that we have exploited uh, that is enabling us to actually identify, you know, within a local data ecosystem, who are the critical players, you know, and what are their priorities. So in any one country, uh, we've got civil society groups, you know, uh, non-government organizations who are working in that space. We want to identify, you know, which of them are keen, you know, uh, because not all of them are, are interested in collaborating with others. Uh, so we want to find out who is keen on working on this challenge. We're not just working alone, but connecting your resources with others, you know, like mine in the same ecosystem. We're talking to universities. We're bringing the private sector also into this, you know, uh, particular conversation, the likes of Esri, NVIDIA, Future Tech, you know, all of them. We're bringing the, you know, multilateral institutions like Islamic Development Bank, you know, who has really, really been supportive. You know, of course, with speaking with World Bank and a number of the FCDO had funded a number of our work, you know, uh, in the recent times as well. You know, bringing all of these folks together, identifying what is the key issue, you know, what are their strengths, how do we create a mutual value proposition that creates sufficient incentives for everyone to want to work together, how do we build trust within that community that enables everyone to actually, you know, contribute resources. Uh, data is a huge resource. The university has a huge amount of data and oftentimes it just sits there. And this is the culture in most part of Africa, tons and tons of data, you know, within the university and research institutions that are not accessible, you know, by <laughs> other players. And so we're bringing them together, creating that, you know, common incentive 
for everyone, you know, creating a common library of, you know, so syntax or language that everyone can actually connect into. Back to speaking the same languages again. <laughs> same languages and trust. Mm -hmm. I, I want to bring Andrew back in. I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I just want to bring Andrew back in. Actually, tr uh, Victor, trust is a, that's a really good point, actually, just, just, just to move across. Trust, 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 trust. You, you know, uh, Andrew, you talked about Paris uh, uh, earlier mm -hmm. on and, and, and your job as a diplomat. And I just wanted to just get some thoughts post-COP, um, what your thoughts about COP were. Uh, and your sort of predictions for the, you know the next sort of twelve months or so. Did, did you did you get a sense of trust, a sense of co collaboration and cooperation? Are you quite um, optimistic about how COP went? Yeah, what was interesting about the Glasgow COP, the expectations of it got so big, just because the world hadn't been able to meet and convene for two years, so it had been delayed for a while. Um, was there too much expectation? What, do you think everyone was like, oh, we've got to oh, do amazing I, things? I was a little worried that the expectations were being set too high because there wasn't the expectation of a really big negotiated outcome. And yet I came away really pleased with what happened, mainly because of what happened in the private sector. So the, I'll, I'll, I'll tick my hat. The UK government did a good job of lining up the private sector to come out and say, yes, we are committed to this issue and here's the next steps we're taking. Mm -hmm. So we saw lots of commitments around um, efforts to reduce deforestation and for you know, companies that import commodities to reduce deforestation in their supply chains, whether it's around beef or soy or oil palm or timber. And we saw big commitments from financial institutions to figure out how they were gonna drive a commitment to stopping deforestation through the companies that they're investing in and developing the tools to do that over time and measure deforestation in their investment portfolios and reduce it. So I just, I, and then you saw a, a lot of companies starting to come forward with, these are our new business models and our new plans to demonstrate how we are going to meet the Paris commitments to be basically carbon neutral by 2050 and start backing that up and setting targets for 2030 in mm -hmm. a timeframe that actually is gonna change business decisions today. So in that sense, I saw some real progress, more so from the companies than from the governments at this point. Mm -hmm. That's good. Optimism is what we like. Uh, Victor, do, how were you at COP as well? I wasn't sure whether you were there too. Were you? Were you? Um, was Data Org there? No, no, I wasn't at COP, but, but I was actually very busy, you know, working with nations who have real problems at their hands at that point in time. Well, I always like to, we're running out of time. I just like to give you all a magic wand. And if you could just quickly wave a magic wand to solve a big problem or something something that's sticking that you can shift. I'm, I'm wondering from where you're both sitting, what that might be. Andrew, what would, if you had a magic wand, what would it be? So this is probably really wonky, but there are processes underway right now to require companies to, as I said, assess and disclose their impacts on climate change, their greenhouse gas emissions. And there's a new process developing now to help countries understand their impacts and their risks around biodiversity and nature as well. So if I could wave a magic wand, I would accelerate those processes so that we actually had the tools and the metrics and the monitoring capability so that companies could understand and set realistic targets around reducing greenhouse gas emissions and becoming more nature positive and reducing their negative impact on nature and be able to disclose that information in real time so that investors could make decisions, right? So at the end of the day, if you're an investor and you look at your Bloomberg terminal and you've got the the profits and earning ratio calculation there, and you've got the bond rating there, 
I want to see that you've also got the greenhouse gas emissions rating and the nature impact there so that you can decide which are good companies to invest in that are headed in the right way and which ones aren't. So again, it's making that, that data available and transparent on climate and nature risk and climate and nature impact for all companies. Get that That's sorted. That's fascinating. Do that. Yeah. Get that by I next guess... time we speak. I want that done. <laughs> yeah, I could explore this a lot more. Actually. That's fascinating. <laughs> Thinking about how you wrap up all the complexity of a company's footprint and impacts on nature into, into a number. That's that's fascinating. And Victor, what would you choose if we could help you sort of solve one thing? What would that be? Well, you know, I'm going to ask for more three major things here. You know, and I'm going to be very quick. One is around how do we, you know, pool our resources together uh, to strengthen data capacity. Uh, for nations, nations, you know, uh, we're pretty much, you know, focused on public sector because they are pretty much left behind the private sector, you know, the development sector, you know, the public sector is really, really left behind. How do we help to develop long-term capacity that is sustainable uh, with regard to data? In fact, data issues of data governance, you know, uh, is a major issue for government. The second thing is around how do we better access to better data? You know, uh, like we all agree that there's data seated somewhere, but access to this data is a big challenge. You know, how do we bring the big corporates, you know, Amazon, you know, Google, and the likes of them to open up their data sets, you know, uh, to these low and middle income countries, free access to this type of data, uh, then on riding on top of better capacity, so to speak, by the users of this data. And I think the final thing here is about financing for data. Uh, data is expensive across the entire data value chain. It requires a huge amount of investment. Uh, and we have a growing work in that regard together with the World Bank, you know, how to unlock financing for data for the SDGs. You know, we're on the home run, so to speak, you know, uh, with respect to the SDGs and we need all the money. You know, even when it comes to climate financing, uh, we need huge investments. So unlocking that financing for data uh, is critical. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed our discussion. Thank you to Victor and to Andrew for taking part. Thank you, most of all, for listening. And we look forward to your company very much next time. Don't forget to get in touch with Luca Vidello or Andy Bennett at KTN if you'd like to collaborate further on any of the topics we've been discussing today. And you can find a link to the publication Net Zero and The Power of Place, which goes alongside this podcast series in the podcast description. See you next time. Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change.